And now a message from our sponsor. Hey everybody, it's Bootleg Captain, Captain Bootlegs here. Yeah. If you're like me, I bet you're enjoying this Toys, Toys on, on Tap, Tap podcast. Yeah, I am enjoying it, it's very nice. But did you know you can enjoy it more just by joining that Patreon? Oh, I did not know that. There are so many cool perks available on the Patreon for you. There's and also and Wow, that's really a lot of stuff if you ask Bootleg Captain. Captain I don't bootleg. understand. There were noises I couldn't hear with the person. So join today to support Toys on Tap podcast and Bootleg Art Toys. But if you're not in a position to join the Patreon, head on over to Apple iTunes and review and subscribe. That helps out the channel as well. Okay, I'll go rate it, I guess. And remember, listen to Toys, Toys on, on Tap. Captain Bootleg, the bootleg captain sent you. Why did he keep referring to himself in the third Can person? I stop with the stupid voice now? I'm not sure why you made me want to sound like a pirate. Oh, so that was a fake voice. Oh, yucko! I, I didn't realize it was just pretend voice. Oh, okay. Welcome to Toys on Tap. This is a fun episode. Yo-Yo Dine is in the house. This is part one of, we've said six, if I believe. Yeah, I think it might end up being more like 6.5. Well, there we go. That that other thing we're planning on doing together in a couple of weeks, right? Yeah, I've told a couple people, but the majority of people have no idea what's happening. What are you talking about? Yes. It's like Dune, I see plans within plans. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. And so we have talked about this. Uh, I think that this will be a good six part series. Mm-hmm. I think I'm most excited about it because it gives, it helps to give credibility to something that though that we're all a part of, we all have different definitions for what's going on. We all have different yeah. start points. We all have different ways of describing what we do to people, which is very infuriating because it just makes it that much harder to describe what we do. Yeah, I think so. I think that, um, you know, I, I mean, you know that there, there are a lot of sort of like issues that drove the idea of doing a series, which was the first issue that you brought to me was like, um, you know, you have this knowledge of appropriation and bootleg toys, like let's do something historical. And I said, mm-hmm. well, historical is good, but there's so many contemporary issues around like, like terminology and the fabric of the scene that I really like to talk about. And like, the the sort of the cultural tuck tuck points i'm not talking anything (laughs) the cultural touch points that sort of bring the community to where it is now and like all of those various threads and let's be like crazy detectives in some like tv show or movie with like the board with the photos and the string and yeah you know let's make connections and stuff like that yeah um so um you know I, i i think it's worth mentioning um to everyone uh, that for the past 10 years, I've, you know, I, I made a decision to go back to grad school and I sort of dedicated myself to studying DIY culture and communities. Um, partly to professionalize myself, you know, in a way that like made an income stream viable, like through like scholarship in the academy and stuff, but partially because I've participated in these communities since I was a teenager, whether it's like film or video games or zines or whatever, experimental music, digital art, um, you know, and so I have, when it, when it comes to this community, you know, I operate with something, uh, and, and the others too, I operate with, and with a position that um, that I call, or that is called, because I didn't make up the term, uh, critical proximity, right? Um, so a lot of people think that academic work, I think there's a common misconception that we're supposed to be objective 
Um, and we have to acknowledge that there's no such thing as objectivity. And as a participant and someone who's thinking and writing about the community, like I'm very close to it. So I feel like representing it ethically is critically important because I never want to misrepresent anyone. But I also want to ask us like, like ask like community members and myself some pretty hard questions about what we're doing, how we talk about it, um, you know, and sort of how that articulates itself. Um, so um, I've got a little bit of, of some notes here, maybe that we can start with to sort of set the stage a little bit, if that's something that you are interested in. Absolutely. Because I think um, even the idea of talking about like asking those hard questions, some people that are in the scene or some people that are just witnessing the scene haven't decided mm -hmm. that they want to ask those questions yet. So I think a little bit of like setting the table of notes would be helpful. Yeah. So um, I, um, what did I call this? The, the idea. So if I were to give this episode a name, and I think this is a really good, a good place to start. Um, I called it terms and conditions. So I want to talk about the cultural conditions about what we do and how we discuss it. And I want to talk about the terminology we deploy and how we're sort of like using language to describe a thing and how challenging that can be because terminology, as much as we try to be specific, the more we try to be specific, the less clear something can become. Yep. Unfortunately, it's this deep irony with language, right? You can never really describe something. Um, so, so here are my beginning thoughts. And this is sort of where I think the conversation with you, sort of the spirit of the conversation originated, like that I had with you and sort of what inspired me. So it's a bit of a ramble. It's just gonna like, bear with me. It's a couple of minutes, but I think this is like, this is sort of me looking at the scene and saying like, what are the questions that I have? Um, and what are some sort of key issues? And like, how can we think about them and talk about them collectively? So um, the toy scene is undergoing, uh, I think something that other communities have all gone through historically. Um, most recently with video games. Um, I think it's a really good sort of contemporary example. So it begins as this mass produced, massively consumed cultural artifact. And then a handful of practitioners start making their own. And then you sort of get these layers and generations of expansion as new people are sort of introduced to it. So now we're at the point where people are making books and zines and how to's on how to make your own bootleg toys. So there's a threshold of a like a like a how-to-ness that you can actually see in other communities when other people have sort of done this work, right? So the indie game scene grew the exact same way. Um, I think there are different conditions that we could talk about as well, but that's like a good start. You know, but it really starts with like a few people start making and distributing their work and then it grows and expands as interest grows and expands uh, to the point where there's no longer a singular scene or community anymore, but sort of a collection of overlapping scenes and communities. Um, and it's in this kind of like, it starts as this kind of cultish arcane knowledge, right? Um, that gets disseminated to broader and broader audience who see more people experimenting and playing with the medium who then get involved and start doing it themselves. I think for us, I think there's something particular about the pandemic that is really see, like if you, you know, the, the community has just like, it's unbelievable the explosion of people who are doing this kind yeah. of work and putting themselves in public now. Um, and I think that's really fantastic. I think um, even when you listen to past episodes with people that have been around for a while, they'll talk about the beginnings of what it was like to trial and error. 
The mm. trial and error period for making toys now is so small in comparison to when people started because even Mattachine Society was talking about how don't ask people anymore. All the videos exist, all the forums, everything. <laughs> so just do it. Yeah, yeah. You know, if, if you're looking for instruction, that's absolutely true. I think if yeah. you're looking for a bit more a sense of kinship, yeah. um, you know, and camaraderie, then like asking people questions is, is a never an invalid thing to do. I absolutely agree that from like an operational, like if you want to learn how to do something, yeah, just go to fucking YouTube. Like, yeah, Steady Crafting has so many videos about this stuff. Just anecdotally, like years ago, the lid switch on my washing machine broke for a specific model of like Sears Kenmore. Mm -hmm. And I watched a YouTube video on how to fix it. So yep. I like added washing machine repair to my resume in like 10 minutes, <laughs> thanks to some guy who was like, this is a common problem with these machines and this is how you deal with it. Yeah. Right? Um, so yeah, so I think that like where we are, uh, where you and I are, is that we decided that this podcast was sort of a di direct result of that expansion uh, and that adoption and sort of acceptance of this like larger acceptance of like bootleg toys as a creative practice. You know, so we start here and then now we're in this, we started a, like one place with a small number of practitioners. And now we're in this place that expands in the same way that indie games did. And you get this like huge spectrum of diverse work and radically in different, different interpretations of cultural artifacts and aesthetics. And so in all of this, you know, I think with all of these other people coming to the community, like the toy space has been an interesting sort of interdisciplinary space for a really long time, right? So yeah. there are all these cultural currents and phenomena that have sort of brought us to where we are. And I think it's like this really crazy Venn diagram that includes like you know, art history and art practices, like, you know, like entertainment and nostalgia industries, fan culture, like contemporary licensing and industrial production, international piracy and copying, street art, design, sculpture, digital design, like on and on and on. There's all these different ways that people are sort of engaging with this. Um, and so, Ultimately, you know, this series is an attempt to sort of track some of this stuff and some of the key issues that I think is really that are really critical to talk about. Um, and I think that like, I don't want, you know, yes, I'm doing my P P PhD in this. Um, uh, and that's a particular kind of like sort of way of thinking, but I don't want anyone to think when they're listening to this that I'm standing from some podium like lecturing at you like I'm some kind of authority. These are the things that I have been learning about and these are the, some of the questions and sort of like thoughts that I have about them. And people can agree or disagree, but I think there's moments where we have to sort of like, as a community be like, okay, what are we talking about here? Because people talk about it differently using the same terminology. And that yeah. ends up being like, you know, part of that problem is like, like in, in the video game space, for example, game art, is like the artwork on the one hand is sort of like the art world's way of describing contemporary art that's made using video games. And then in the industrial side, game art is like the concept art and the art assets that are within your game. Mm -hmm. Same terminology, but a clear distinction between like what they are. So that's the kind of stuff we're gonna get into. So, um, so here are some of the, here, here's a list and then we can sort of break off and talk about these. Um, 
So the first one is how we talk about toys and how we talk about art and the terminology that we use to discuss sort of the specific material and cultural practices that we're engaged in. Um, I think there's an interesting conversation in terms of craft versus art and where we could locate some of that. Um, the, the form of the action figure itself, this kind of question of, you know, some artists choose not to package their work and some think that the package is like an integral part of the, of the, the form. Mm -hmm. um, and, then, and then sort of some other stuff that I think are like really sort of like key underlying issues that don't just define what we're doing, but define what, a, what whole other sectors and other media of, of culture are doing. So like there's this idea um, and there's, there's a lot of really great literature about this, but the idea of the culture of copying and then the copying of culture. So meaning like, like what is copying and how do we view it in culture? Um, I think the connection to remix culture is an unavoidable discussion that we can have. And then theories, or maybe better than theories, because I don't want to talk about theories, but like, you know, sort of deeper questions related to ownership and appropriation. So we've got this, how do we talk about these things via terminology and just sort of like, like, like general, general conversations and discourse? Like, what are the specific features of this thing? And how does it relate to these larger questions about like remix, appropriation and ownership? So that's, yeah. that's where we're starting. So if you have tracked with us, we're starting at a big play. And I think <laughs> the, <laughs> the, maybe this is just a, um, by the way, if you are still with me, I am the dumber part of this podcast, the question part. Not at all, man. Not <laughs> um, at all. So the thing that drives me nuts about art in general, I love mm. art, but it drives me nuts because I was once in a conversation and the guy said, anything can be art. I have I argue tooth and nail that that can't be true because there has to be defining lines by which we judge things. Right. And my wife, before I married her, I didn't know this about her. If I would have known this about her, I would still have married her, but I would have had more reservations. She was <laughs> like, she made the statement that a child coloring on a page can be just as much art as a Van Gogh painting. In right. my head, there are things that are like, no, absolutely right. not. But to her art doesn't have the same dividing lines. And I think that has carried over into the inability to, to kind of like name or draw guiding lines in this action figure world for me. Yeah, and you know, like the debate around, or debates around art and what is art and what is not, um, you know, are like hundreds and hundreds of years. Yeah. Old, right. Like in the 17th century, Immanuel Kant writes a critique of judgment, which is talking about how art should, art, art, art should be beautiful, but it should be trying to attain um, a status best described as sublime, where mm -hmm. like the human being is sort of awestruck in the face of the universe. Like those are some pretty grand ambitions. And yeah. like, you know, I think we can argue that like, you know, my American psycho Darth Vader mashup does not achieve the ambitions of somebody like that, right? <laughs> um, so, so there's there's different ways that we can talk about this, um, yep. and and so there's the aesthetic question, right? So that's a question of like art and aesthetics, and aesthetics linked to sort of artistic intention. That's one way to think about it. Like, um, and you know, after after Kant, you end up 
there's there's a whole bunch of other stuff I could get into there, but it's a long and sort of storied process of like how individual eras sort of have individual aesthetic categories that emerge because of the times that they're in mm -hmm. and how they influence what we view as art and not art, right? The, the other side of this is, you know, you can look at art history and say, here are all the great canonical works of art and this is how like things line up in a lineage. The problem mm -hmm. with the canon is that it is, you know, um, it is predominantly skewed towards a particular kind of like Western male kind of practitioner. And we, art history is not a straight line. You know, it's a branching tree full of people of many nationalities, cultures, and genders. So that kind of doesn't work for me either. I'm, 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 I'm very much not opposed to the idea of a construction of a canon, like mm. the great works of art, but I think we need to reevaluate what that is. So the final way yeah. that we can think about this, or maybe one of the final, the final way that I'm going to talk about, because there's many others, is this idea of the social organization of art. We interrupted this broadcast of Toys on Top to bring you this. Meanwhile, in a galaxy of bootleg treasures. DOV2, we have engine failure. We must crash land on DKE Toy Planet. Oh my, we're doomed. Wait, salvation. Hooray. We're saved, DLP2. Limited edition custom artist-made action figures and DKE toys. Check out www.dkatoys.com for a full catalog. Hooray for custom action figures. DKE. So, you know, a whole lot of sociologists have asked this question, like, art is a cultural phenomenon that usually involves communities of people. So how does that work? Um, and so there's this idea, Howard Saul Becker, who's like a well-known sociologist, uh, wrote a book called Art Worlds, which is basically saying like, when enough people call a thing a work of art, whether that's creative practitioners, uh, you know, sort of patrons or audience members or enthusiasts, critics, institutions, when enough sort of critical mass of all the different like cultural actors in that network, like declare something art, then that process of validation, like under, you know, takes time. Yeah. The interesting thing about that is that every emergent media form that we've come to consider an art form has also gone through growing pains where they were described as being like, like base and, you know, like cinema is a good example, right? So this idea of there's moral panics that come any anytime someone creates a new medium or a new medium emerges in culture, um, there's a moral panic around it with people like waving flags saying it can't be art. It's baseless entertainment. Yeah. Cinema went, <laughs> you know, it's, it's like, it's corrupting our youth, yeah. like all of this kind of stuff. So like cinema, comic books, jazz, rock and roll, video games. Like it was less than a decade ago where Roger Ebert wrote an article saying video games cannot be art in response to the museum of modern art, including um, like 12 video games in their design collection. Like, and then this whole other sort of thing. So, so part of the growing pains are is also like sort of established people, like stakeholders in culture who don't really understand what this new thing is saying like, this isn't fucking art and a whole bunch of people saying actually, but it is. Right? Well, and what makes me think as if we pause for a second, each one of those things uh, that you've talked about where it was said to not be art um the same people that are the ones that say nope this isn't art are usually the same ones that make the organizations that dictate what can be in it i would say yeah i i, I get what you're saying is that yeah like, 
you know, people like to defend their territory and they view the, the stakes here because they feel like there's some sort of like threat to the traditions that have come before. Mm-hmm. But culture in and of itself is about change. So like, get over it. You know? Yeah. Um, like the aesthetic dimensions of like 21st century postmodern late stage capitalism are different than the aesthetic dimensions of like, you know, rational thought and linear perspective during the Renaissance. Like, it's not the same fucking thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's fine because culture changes everything, right? Like, so all this to say, with all of these kinds of debates that people have, I'm actually not interested in ever asking the question, but is it art? Because there will inevitably be people, like people will inevitably have their own bias and opinions that will influence what they're thinking. And both sides of that argument will always find reasons to both declare a thing as art and not, right? Yeah, because it's so subjective, right? Yeah. Yeah, so my question is, what are the features of this that make it good art? Yeah. And what are the features of this maybe that make it bad art, right? Like, these are the kinds of questions I'm more interested in. Can action figures and toys be art? Absolutely. You know, artists have been working with toys in games for, like, decades and decades. Um, yeah. Know, like, and, and, and that's a really important thing to think about, too, is that there are different articulations of the ways that these objects have sort of shown up in culture. And this is just the most recent one. Um, yeah, yeah. And even with like dealing with artists, we have people like Josh Hoagland um, on last week's episode where he, he said something offhanded and it caught me off guard. And he said he was making action figure things. And then his dad was bronzing them and making bronze sculptures of them in like nice. the eighties and nineties. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so, you know, this is like, we can, there's other, th- other things related to this that we can talk about, but it's the idea here is there will always be an earlier instance of a thing that you weren't aware of. Yeah. There, and there will always be a different sort of articulation of that thing in a different community. Um, you know, there, there will always be examples that we can find throughout history that either sort of reinforce and support the argument or sort of undermine it. Um, so we have to sort of, like ask ourselves different questions like what is the what are the features of this thing that we are calling bootleg toys as art or art toys or designer toys you know or customs and like all of that terminology ends up like spilling out onto the table and it's like we have all these things that we are trying to distinguish and yet the terminology still is not entirely or abundantly clear to us um yeah and it's yeah, I'm I'm a big fan of the of like of the the sort of like that Becker perspective. If enough people get together and are doing things that are similar enough that they can call it art, right? Because so what they've done is they've established convention. That's part mm-hmm. of the features of something becoming art is that you establish a set of sort of material and aesthetic con- conventions. So in in our case, it would be like the figure form in the Becker card, or the figure form, or like all of the other sort of like IPs that we glom on through like an idea of appropriation and remix culture. Um, yeah, so, yeah. sorry, I totally like, this is a good conversation. It just totally threw me like off track a little bit because we went yeah. somewhere else. <laughs> well, I have, because I have questions that also, because uh, as you track through, I mean, just basic art history, you know that mm. 
like a long time ago, it was the wealthy that would commission things yeah. and they would like get paintings and stuff. But when we deal with action figure art or toy art or whatever we're going to call it, like as we unveil this, um, we have it because you know that I'm enticed by that idea of culture jamming and like I'm enticed. Mm. We've talked about it so much. But I think we have taken culture instead of being like waiting for someone to say, oh, who's going to make this of me or who's going to do this? It seems like this scene has decided, oh, we're going to without being asked to. Yeah. And, you know, this is like this this sort of gets into some of the other stuff that I was really interested in, like this idea of um, like the community is interesting in terms of the cross currents between like fandoms, like collector culture, collectors culture, collectors culture, collector cultures, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, uh, like like independent designers, like people who come from other art practices like street art or just like contemporary art, um, you know, and they all sort of meet in the middle in this interesting place. And that place is basically, we are going to remix and appropriate things. We are not going to ask permission. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of like, kind of part of culture, right? So something that I would suggest to everybody here, and I don't think this is a controversial idea, but I think it's a really good place to sort of like talk about like why we're doing this um, or, or maybe how we're doing this. So let's start with the premise that all culture, all of culture is in part predicated on the, on the act of copying, right? Like, it's how we learn and develop as infants and children. If you didn't copy your parents or your guardians when you were a child, you wouldn't know how to walk, you wouldn't know how to talk, you wouldn't like, you know, your thoughts would no longer be organized in that way. Like all of that sort of comes through mimesis and mimicry. Um, you know, without, without uh, the act of copying, you know, you don't get like the establishment of larger sort of aesthetics and art movements. Right, you don't get cubism if only one person is doing cubism. Yeah, you get cubism because someone said this is interesting to me, and then a whole bunch of other people said, "Oh, fuck yeah, that's really interesting to me." Um, you know, and then ultimately for us, I think one of the things that leads to this perhaps is more influential than any of that, any anything else, is this like sort of the introduction of industrialization and mass production the efficiencies that mass production brings in terms of the way that copies can be replicated and churned out. And even sort of like the like post-war creation of the suburbs and these like cookie cutter communities, all of this stuff, like since modernism is predicated on copying, Walter Benjamin has this famous, um, this famous essay called Art in the Age of Mechanical Reproducibility, where he talks about how industrialization is changing culture in a, in, a, in a very different way. Mm -hmm. And so, and we'll get into this in later episodes because that idea that copying is a core cultural phenomenon that drives so much of culture, including what, not just what we do, but like the nostalgia entertainment complex as I call it now, or that, you know, after reading an article about something about it where they use that word, um, the nostalgia industrial complex, um, everything is sort of, copies and iterations and copies and iterations and copies and iterations right it's like yeah which is crazy because you and i have both seen it that if we it's great like in this scene if someone produces something we can pretty much pinpoint 
who else has done that? It's very easy when you get to know artists, but then there's also that thing of like, there have been people that have been confronted with, Oh, you, why are you doing this? They already did it. Yeah. And I think that, you know, I think that like, let's take a step back from that because that is definitely ownership is an interesting part of the conversation. Mm -hmm. Um, But let's take a look at sort of like a more sort of top tier level of ownership that we can sort of, that we can understand and then step into that because I think it'll get us there in, in in like a more sort of like nuanced way. Yeah. So, so in this sort of massive cultural exchange that is constantly happening where people are like copying and iterating and repeating and all of that, you know, you have one side, which is sort of this corporate industrial machine making things for people to consume that claim ownership over, you know, whether it's like a character license, like, like some kind of like IP, like, like Star Wars, Dungeons and Dragons, whatever. Right. Yeah. Like, so IPs are these things that people own. And then if you want to copy it, you can copy it in what we consider to be authorized or real are companies who pay other companies for the right to copy that thing in a different form. Mm. Right. So that's like, that's, that's like the, the sort of legal kind of framework that works in a licensing. It's like Spider-Man, you know, is sort of like a cultural phenomenon, a cultural character, but in order to copy him, without facing the wrath of now Disney, which owns everything. That's a whole other. That's a scary wrath. Don't do it. Um, You have to get permission and you get permission basically by renting Spider-Man. So, so Hasbro rents the idea, which is crazy. If we think about this, he rents the idea of, they rent the idea of Spider-Man so they can make Spider-Man toys. Yeah. You're renting this idea. You're paying money to somebody to say for permission to use that idea. Now appropriation, which is, you know, also sort of a key defining feature of art throughout history is the action of taking something for your own use without actually asking for quote, the owner's permission. Mm-hmm. And I think that in most cases, both in the designer toy side, which I associate more with like, like soft vinyl and soft and sort of like more like that kind of, I don't want to say more commercial, but you know, they are appropriating and like sort of remixing licenses in their own way as well as what bootleg toy makers are doing. But we're all sort of doing that kind of work. And we're, we're taking stuff from culture that other people have legal claims of ownership for, let alone sort of cultural or moral claims of ownership for. Um, and we're making it our own. And this is like part of that, like the like politics of remix too, right? So we take in all of this stuff and then we add our own voice to it we, in, in a new articulation and then we put it out into the world. So the question in that case becomes like, how does anyone with what we do claim ownership over an idea, right? Like this is, this is legitimately the question that I have about this. If we're already talking about a space where the, not the entire, because there's lots of people who do like original characters and original sculpts, but even some of those, as we know, came from like, you know, if we look at Killer, for example, like, like Phantom Starkiller and Draco Knuckle Duster, like have a lineage that was copying from particular action figures from a particular point in time. And then like, 
he made those things his own to such a point where they're distinct and at least, and also this is really important legally not just morally or culturally distinct like legally distinct enough that he can sort of work with super seven and license his character right yeah. one of the few examples of somebody who's done that but for the you know for those of us who haven't kind of done that work we're all kind of working on this like level playing field where like culture is at our fingertips and we're drawing from this same ocean of ideas yeah and every once in a while you're gonna get something from one person like whether it's a pun or like a particular figure idea or whatever and you're gonna get somebody else who has the exact same idea and then they both articulate it with their own voices yeah and so what I, this is this is my argument here um on the one hand, the only way that you can ever claim ownership over an idea you have is to actually internalize it and never share it with anybody. Like if you want an idea, if you want an idea to be yours and yours alone, yeah, you keep it to yourself, and then it will always belong to you because you can always control it because it's living in the realm of your own ideas and you own it, and that's fine. Yeah, you know, but once you let it go at least in terms of how we think of maybe like cultural and moral economies, right? Which is, which is something I can expand on if you're interested in like think, like asking like, what, what the fuck are those? Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's at least an underlying thread here that says it belongs to culture and we're gonna do what we want with it, right? Like there are people who talk about participatory culture, like productive fan cultures, like fans who sort of love these things so much that they have adopted it for themselves and they are churning out their own cultural products based on their interests within that thing. Um, a really early example of like, like fan culture, cultural production that I, I find really interesting is like the slash zines of the 1970s, mm -hmm. which were basically romance novels written by like American housewives about Kirk and Spock going on intergalactic adventures, but they were also lovers. So it's <laughs> We call it shipping now in yeah. fiction, but the one of the original articulations of that was Kirk slash Spock, so it was called slash fiction. Um, you know, and it was relatively underground, like male distribution or whatever. So, so to revisit this idea of ownership, like if you think you have exclusive domain over this stuff, I don't think that's a correct approach at all. You know, if you're making a, a like, here's here's a way to think about this. If you are making assertions of ownership of an idea predicated on the appropriation of other brands and characters, think about what that means. It means that you believe that your work predicated on unauthorized copying, remixing, and reproduction of work that is legally owned by a corporation or an individual is somehow yours, right? I think what you do own is you own your voice and your articulation of that idea but not the idea itself. And, you know, people might be thinking like, I'm, you know, I'm like splitting hairs or whatever, but I think that's a really important thing to think about, right? Like, you know, sometimes two people can come up with the same like pun, for example, or a combination of letters to create a remixed figure. And they're radically different. They're radically different. Like for example, um, for the last, for Comic-Con, Malo made a Franken-Vader figure, which was a Frankenstein head on a Darth Vader body, mm -hmm. right? And when I saw her release, 
I immediately sent her a picture and was like, this is my Frank Invader for Designer Con, which is the exact opposite, but also adding like the monster cereal stuff, right? Similar idea, yeah. exact same wording, totally different work of art, totally different voice, totally different sort of like, um, like iteration of the idea, you know? Uh, and, and neither one of us own the idea of a Frank invader. Neither one of us own any of those ideas, except to say we had this idea to put it together. And the thing that we can claim ownership over is our voice and how we articulated it. It's not up to us whether someone else makes one of those or not. It's well beyond our control. And if you want to make a moral argument, like it becomes really muddy and really gray and really difficult because you're already in a position where your art is already predicated on the appropriation. I don't want to use the word theft. I think appropriation is the right word, right? Because you're yeah. it and stuff. But it's already predicated on using stuff that like other people claim ownership for. So you're already in the swamp on this one. Yeah, right? and I think that you're making an important distinction, right? So you and Malo, as the example, both started with an idea and it presented itself in two different ways mm-hmm. versus if I see Nekusatsu create her CCP figure, I take that figure, recreate the exact same thing, exact same card back. That becomes the appropriation. I think well, that you're. And you're, and then you're making like a moral argument. And, yeah. and I think there's a difference. I think there's a difference between two people articulating an idea in like, you know, in like, but also sort of like nuanced different ways than there is with someone straight up like taking someone else's backer and like the idea for the yeah and just recasting it like that's cloning right that's not appropriation that's cloning yeah like you are you are you are you are appropriating that work in a different way and you are the labor of taking that idea and articulating it in that particular way that labor is also as an artist something you own right mm-hmm. so if you're taking the work of another person and then doing something, I think there's like, yeah, there's there's really interesting questions here. But the problem that I have with this is that ultimately when people start making these claims of ownership over ideas, like they're really behaving like gatekeepers and it's really exclusionary, right? Like a rising tide does lift all boats, you know? And this is, this is maybe the, you know, I made jokes about this on Yoli's uh, podcast that like, you know, as a, as a sort of like democratic socialist from Canada, I don't have the same view of sort of success in capitalism that American culture seems obsessed with, right? Yeah. So for me, American culture, American capitalism as a cultural phenomenon is best described as from someone from the outside, nobody get mad at me. Um, <laughs> Go ahead for it. Go for it. Right? So, so I'm sure you're familiar with a little TV show called Storage Wars. Yeah. Right? So the entire... The entire premise of storage wars is already an articulation of predatory capitalism, which says people who have defaulted on the rent for their storage lockers because they couldn't afford to keep this stuff because they probably lost their homes or something terrible, mm-hmm. right? Then get sold to these sort of people who come in who resell used goods. That's, that's one facet, predatory capitalism, that's one facet. But the real thing that I wanna to point to, the real thing I wanna to point to here is that the individual people who are on that show who are bidding on auctions, it's not enough for them to win. They also have to make the other person fail, Mm -hmm. right? So like, I'm gonna bid this up and make them pay more and then that will make me more successful. That's the problem. 
right? That is the key problem with like the, the ideological underpinnings of American capitalism is that in order for me to do well, someone else can't. Yeah. And I, I find it like abhorrent, honestly. Yeah. Right. Like I feel, and this is, this is why I take, like, I ask anyone who sees someone who makes work similar to theirs before you freak out and go on a tirade about how you have solo ownership over those ideas. Ask yourself where the idea came from and ask yourself what you're trying to accomplish by quote calling out somebody for having similar ideas in a space that's, we're all having similar ideas. We're all working within a particular form. We're all drawing from the same cultural artifacts. You know, that's gonna happen. So ask yourself about that and ask yourself if you're behaving like one of those shitheads on storage wars. Yeah. You know, and, and the problem is, and this is why I call it, why, why I suggested this behavior can be gatekeeping, um, is because that behavior or that activity, I understand that you want to protect your own interests and do well. We all do, right? But we have to think about, like, what that does to the other person that we also are sort of, like, trying to call it. Like, that is exclusionary. And when people make these claims, and I've seen this, it forces people to no longer participate because they don't want to deal with the grief of this because it's too much. And I think that's a serious problem. Yeah, I think and that's, that's what happened. Sorry, go ahead. The more that we talk, uh, I am reminded of times in which I've heard people say like, cause I've talked to Janky about this, that for the longest time, I have equated make your own shit. Like I've heard that. We interrupt this broadcast of Toys on Top to bring you this. When you come to the right place, Earth to Kentucky is a shop for folks who love vintage sci-fi, lowbrow, and art bootleg toys. Toys, toys, toys. They're located over there at 836 Main Street, Covington, Kentucky. They carry original art, vintage action figures, designer bootleg toys, and toys, 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 and t-shirts. Designed exclusively for their store by some of their favorite artists. Thank you, Earthling. I enjoy Earth to Kentucky. I have all my favorite bootleg art toys. toys. Hey, look at that over there. It's a spaceship. Yeah. I need to go now. Someone's filming me in my spaceship. Shop now. www.earthtokentucky.com. That's earth2kentucky.com. Or just land your spaceship when they're open. Like, everyone in this scene should have heard that said to them because we are all bootlegging or doing whatever we're doing. And it made me equate the idea of original characters, original story, like that is the pinnacle, right? When you get there, that is it. But it's not. Yeah. And so I don't like the phrase, make your own shit. Because even like I'm working on an original character now, I've had to use other toy parts to make my shit, which means it's not my shit. Yeah. Yeah. And this is the thing, right? Like all cultural production is a response to other forms of cultural production. Yeah. We're all responding to the things that are within our spheres. Um, and yeah, so for me, the idea of like having an original character that I can license, not even anywhere near what, what I'm interested in doing. Yeah. I am actually like very interested in as an artist, the idea of like of remix in like a really sort of like material way, right? Like, and you've seen my work, like, you know, and there's a lot of work that's done like that. And I think that that like, you know, it's not, most of the time that remix stuff is some of my favorite work, but not always, you know, like it, 
like this is the thing like the scene is also so broad that there can't just be like one pinnacle of achievement to be like whatever like i i feel like again that relates back to some sort of like american manifest destiny entrepreneurial yeah sort of spirit and that's fine but this is actually one of the questions that i have that i think we can we can bring into this conversation which is to say like we're not participating this is not an industry mm-hmm. right like we're not we are we are what I would call para-industrial practice. We are running yep. in parallel to the industrial practices of like toy production. We're also running in parallel to other sort of like art movements, right? Like there's this channel that we're working in and there's overlap in both directions. But I would say that like operating in parallel or adjacent to some of this stuff, like industrial production in a, in a very traditional sense is like, you know, the assembly line, it's mass production. It's all of the things at a scope and scale beyond what any of us are doing, which is handmade work. Yeah. Like, so this looks more like craft because of the materials that we're using. But I think that industry thing and that connection to industry, and I think it's because we connect so closely to fan cultures and other toy cultures, right? Mm. Like, and one of the reasons I think that more collectors are sort of finding this kind of work is because like, for example, they've run out of Star Wars figures to collect because they have all 96 of them or whatever. Yeah. (laughs) You know, which is interesting too, because then you have people who are being like, well, all right. Like, I don't know if you know the next 17, do you know their work? No. Next17.com. So this person is doing uh, like manufactured injection molded figures of Star Wars characters that were never produced in the original line that look like they could have been made. So he did E-Font Man, that elephant dude. I I just just ordered one because I'm like really fascinated by the idea, right? So so this is where the terminology gets really interesting. What's a bootleg? Mm -hmm. Like, oh my God, man, you should see the list on my notes here. I think you have a copy of it. So it's like, it's like, like, Bootleg knockoff, reproduction, yep. like replication, imitation, emulation, right? Kit bashing and customs, like there are all these different things. And it becomes like super complicated and difficult to pin down because now, like even with like what I do, it's sort of kit bashing, but it's like kit bashing with little pieces that I made on my 3D printer that I, I then add. So it's not even a full analog practice anymore. It's like hybrid. Yeah, and I think people who just do digital releases as sculpts for people to print on their own machines. Yeah, Um, Desert Octopus, by the way. Oh, yes. Fucking released the Snoop Dogg Mandalorian from the new music video, and I literally got it queued up in my printer. Um, I made a backer card and sent it to Desert Octopus just to be like, "You just totally inspired me to make this," Um, you know, and like, like. Yeah, I don't know who yeah, Desert anyway, Octopus sorry. is, uh, like as a person, but they made um, a Squid Games figure, and then I yep. saw it was done for the love of toys, I believe. Uh, had it printed, paint. It looks beautiful, yep. and I think. And there's people who are like Squid Games, an excellent example. Like, like how many fucking like whenever something goes viral in culture in the toy scene a shitload of people get on it. How many fucking Tiger King figures were there? Exactly, March, yeah. Right? Like, and I got text messages text messages from people, from friends of mine that aren't in the toy scene that were like, hey, are you going to produce this? And I immediately said no, because like there's going to be 30 others that will. Mm-hmm. Like there are things that, at which I 
will choose not to do if I know that I'm not going to be at a certain level, especially if I have this many people that I could buy from or do whatever. Well, and it also depends on what you're interested in creating as an artist. Yeah. And then, well, when I look at, before we move on a little bit, like out of all those, so you listed all those different things, what comes to mind is pieces like Magoob partnering or collabing with um, Killer. He made the Space Warps version of, He's right there. Great. Yeah, you have it hanging on your wall. So it <laughs> yeah. makes the space work. Right beside, version. by the way, right beside a Phantom Star Killer. Oh, how dare you? <laughs> uh, <laughs> makes the, the Space Wars version of Phantom Star Killer and they collab on that, right? That is a that that hits so many of those different categories. So now when you look at that piece, Magoob does amazing work. I will buy things from Magoob because it's Magoob and I just love yeah. who what he does. But when you look at that, that becomes very hard to pin down of what category you think you want it to be in. Yeah, yeah. And I think that like, so so my suggestion when it comes to all of this is like, we can get as specific as we want. But the problem is, this is my problem with terminology. Is yeah. the, more speci- the more specific you get terminologically, mm-hmm. the less inclusive your terminology becomes. Right. Yeah. And so one of the questions that I have, and and also because the way that we talk about, like, even if we took it a step above bootlegs, right. And we could talk about art toys or designer toys and like the kind of categorical differences there. Well, maybe what we need is a larger sort of umbrella that other communities have adopted, like indie or independent. Like I'm an independent toy producer. Yeah. Work within a particular sort of like subsect like, you know, as Dub would call it, a niche within a niche of a yeah. community. But this is the kind of work I do. This is how I can specifically describe it. But it connects to this larger idea, I think, in a really, like, compelling way. Um, and that can incorporate original, you know, sort of, like, kitbashed, remixed, like, the weird sort of, like, like you know, like, with Magoob's work, with, with the scan, with the Warped series, mm-hmm. like, the comments on, like, sort of culture and generation loss and consumption and production and everything that, like, there's a lot in that work for me. Like, I'm yeah. very appreciative of what Magoob has done with that work. And also, you know, there's this idea that I could also say, well, you know, the idea of using, like, consumer 3D scanning technology to badly scan a figure and, and, uh, you know, 3D print it and then cast it, like, he doesn't necessarily own that idea. I mean, some people think might make the moral argument that there's some sort of, like, ethical sense of ownership over that particular flow. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you know, it's general enough and accessible enough that anybody could really do it. He just happened to have that idea at that particular moment in time, and that's his voice that we yeah. see that sort of workflow right it's like people who do circuit bending like i remember yeah. in the chip music scene there were people who were circuit bending nintendos to make live visuals and then there was there were a couple of people who started coding to do kind of like the same thing on a code level to make sort of glitch visuals and there was this like real sense at one point in time of like proprietary ownership over something and it's like dude, you're literally cracking open a fucking Nintendo and noodling around and coming coming up with your own process. Like, there's nothing in there that really you own because all of the knowledge comes from somewhere else, right? Like, it's it's your version of it. But if other people, again, like I said, if other people 
didn't see early cubism and think that was like compelling and interesting, we wouldn't have had an entire movement in the early 20th century that we called cubism. Right. Yeah. And I think we what's interesting, too, even with just like focusing back on the names is we what has caused a lot of trouble is we are also adopting the names and using them for our own purposes. Yeah. So it's an easier terminology to tell someone I make bootleg toys because yeah. that kind of registers in their head. You yeah, see it's this, well, like you see this with Sucklord currently. Right. So the toys that he will produce and post on his story when he drops. I believe, if I can remember right, he calls them rack toys, mm. and which is great. Like that's a good use of that. However, when you when I talked to Brian Heiler, who wrote <laughs> the book Rack Toys, that is a very different definition of what they're both achieving. Yeah, and I think that if you're specific about what you mean, then you know all the power to you. If you're yeah. taking the if you're taking the traditional idea of what a rack toy was. Mm -hmm right which was a cheap licensed like knocked out like toy that then gets like sent out for like quick buys because it has some kind of ip on it that people recognize whether it's a parachuting spock or whatever yeah 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 right but there's something about like i think that and i haven't heard Sucklord actually like i haven't seen that articulation of of, of what he means by rack toy but you can assume because Sucklord has always kind of been like, these are low quality. Yeah, yeah. Like, this is shitty work. You're an asshole for buying this. Like, he's sort of highlighting, like, part of the history of what a rack toy is, but sort of, like, trying to frame it contemporarily, which says, this is my cheap knockoff of a licensed thing that I'm doing in this particular way. And it sort of stands. But, like, you kind of need to qualify this stuff a little bit, right? Like, um, like so you know, like bootleg is an interesting idea. And actually I wrote down something here that sort of lines up with bootleg. But one of the things I was thinking about when we talk about bootlegs, because I told you about my friend who said, I saw the bootleg Bible and like half of the shit in there isn't a bootleg. And I was like, because of X, Y, and Z. And I said, yeah. well, hold on a second here. Because normally we think a bootleg is sort of a material copy of a thing, right? <laughs> like, like a Grateful Dead cassette that someone recorded on a handheld recorder at a concert is like a bootleg that then gets copied and distributed. Like yeah, yeah. Um, you know, bootlegging coming from like, like, you know, the history of sort of like piracy and like fucking rum production. Like it's crazy mm -hmm. where that like, you know, so the word changes over time. So when we bootleg, you know, there is a material copying practices that practice that's happening, right? Like whether we're like molding up a stormtrooper and just making copies or whether we're chopping that up and putting new parts on there and kit bashing it. The bootleg part of it is still also, I think we can think about it in terms of the IP that we're working with, right? So it's that unauthorized copying, not necessarily solely the object, but also the IP. So like if you do an original sculpt of Darth Vader, is that a bootleg? Yeah, because you've told you've taken that thing, that idea of that character, and you're doing something different with it, which is different than say a knockoff, right? So a knockoff as like an industrial term would be something that says, this there is a cultural phenomenon at work here we want to make something that looks like it but is legally distinct enough that we can get away with selling it so yeah and we'll, and we'll get into this again i guess when we do that like that episode like dedicated to star wars because it's basically that's what it's good like one of the things i want to talk about with that um is how many knockoffs like and i'm not just talking about the toys I'm talking mm -hmm. about movies 
TV shows, comic books, like a full-blown phenomena that made like space opera shit everywhere that all had different flavors of Star Wars. And then like, even like, is Star Wars a knockoff of Dune? Is it about a chosen person who's supposed to save the galaxy who comes like lives on a desert planet? Yeah, so <laughs> there's, and, and again, even that, right? Like Harry Potter is also a knockoff of like, like shot for shot knockoff for Star Wars because of how it's like structured, right? There's only so much, that stupid phrase that like every idea has been thought of, or is it, how, how does that go? Oh, here's, yeah, there's that, but there's also like, um, I actually was looking at some of this stuff this morning before we talked. So that idea that like good artists copy, great artists steal. Yeah. Um, and it's really interesting. So like the origins of that, that's a paraphrasing of a quote from T.S. Eliot. Mm-hmm. And, and this is really interesting to me. Immature poets imitate, mature poets steal. The good poet welds his theft into a whole feeling, which is unique and utterly different than that from which it is torn, right? So it's like, okay. we're all doing this, but you know what makes mature work? When your voice transforms and re-articulates that thing. And yeah. so like, we can think about this even like with Star Wars or any of these other stories that we talk about with like the very sort of traditional, like Joseph Campbell, like mythologies, the hero's journey, right? Mm -hmm. So like every coming of age story is kind of a hero's journey, you know, like every, like all of the signposts are there and then our voices are the things that render them unique. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I, oh yeah. It just (laughs) irritates me so much when it comes to that stuff. Cause like even the phrase Mexican bootleg like so I, we're gonna get into that too because i wanted yeah. to do, we're gonna do like i've got a list here for those who are actually like still listening to me prattle on about this stuff um <laughs> it's only part one of six ladies and gentlemen yeah part one of six yeah it's like yeah where did it go so i actually had a list of like all the different things we were going to discuss and then i got rid of that to-do list because i had to update my to-do list um but basically like i want to talk about sort of like regional like regional bootleg culture, like why we say things like Mexican bootleg, why we say things like Polish bootleg, because there are both cultural and material sort of like things that like practices or things that like at work there that make those distinct and regional, right? Um, And you could say the same about like sort of like, like Argentinian or Brazilian or Asian. What's really interesting too, terminologically, like if you look at the Transformers toy scene, there are tons of people who are doing just crazy complicated engineered injection molded transformers based on characters from the like the original 1980s line, but they don't call them bootlegs. They call them third party, hmm. which is really interesting because if you call something a third party producer, there's a kind of like part of that is like a sort of language of like um, uh, validation or do you know like it's there's yeah. there's yeah, it's legitimizing language. It's a language that like legitimizes the practice a little more, which is really kind of interesting to me. Um, you know, the Japanese have a term called pachimon, which is like cheaply made knockoffs toys. Um, you know, uh, so regional articulations and the way that we the way that we talk about them, like Mexican bootlegs, are interesting because a lot of them are actually at this point like original sculpts. Um, oh, weird! So they're not even bootlegs then, if you're right? if they're original sculpts. 
Oh, but this is that question. If they are original sculpts of existing IP that they don't have the license for, then technically we can still call it a bootleg, right? It's not just a one-to-one -one material copying at this point. Yeah. Part of bootlegging now, I would suggest to you, is part of like, like for example, like my like you know my my favorite like 1970s Mexican Superman that keeps me company at my mm -hmm. desk, like. This is clearly not made from any like commercial Superman toy. This mm -hmm. was hand sculpted and then made in a like a mold was made and then like like hand injection molded with like a crank like hand crank injection molding machine. So so again like that question of like bootlegging and copying. Well, here we're copying the idea of Superman, and we're giving him a new material form. Does that make it more or less a bootleg? I don't think so. I think we can we can pretty much agree. That that's still like a like a bootleg Superman figure because mm. it's not a knockoff because it's not legally distinct enough from Superman to be called something other than Superman, right? Yeah, and I I watched a video uh, yesterday. Uh, I mean, just as I do watch random toy videos, and the one between Killer and Sucklord came up where they're sitting on like it looks like they just met for the first time, <laughs> and they're talking about the idea that they both started with Boba Fett, mm. and that there's this. Uh, weird outlaw esque like feeling of like oh we start with this character yeah. because it represents like but that they both started with that character. So for them, right, Boba Fett is this like this like this care like what is a character if nothing except a manufactured persona at this point created by a corporation? Yeah. So the character of Boba Fett, you know, even if they're using those parts. You know they're doing like sort of material copying and bootlegging but you can make something that looks like a boba fett pretty easily with a hand sculpt and you would be doing the same thing mm -hmm. what i would suggest is that what they're talking about in terms of the transgression right transgressing transgressing the boundaries of these license agreements between companies in our community now like some like generations later um is actually convention like everybody okay. has to do a requisite boba fett that's kind of part of the joke now right yeah like, and it's like, everybody is trying to find their space to do their pun, um, like on the, you know, their play on the name Boba Fett. So it's interesting because that's the other thing. Like when you start establishing those conventions, then things become normalized and they become part of the fabric of the, like, of the community. Um, and I love that. I love the idea that like, you know, it's not uncommon for people to like feel the need, urge, um, or desire to like make a make a bootleg Boba Fett. I've done some custom Boba Fetts back in the day, um, but I've never actually done like done like a like a true Boba Fett bootleg. You know, yeah. So like these things sort of expand in our like and 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 sort of like vary uh, over time. But things that we view as transgressive eventually become normalized and like conventional. Yeah. Um, right, and that's sort of part of the practice. As, as things grow and more people come in, because as more people come in as well, like one of the things about this, if the scene is that big, like how can you ask somebody, like this is back to that ownership question, like the due diligence that be required to see every participating member of the scene and every work they've ever done. Like, it, you know, it's unlikely that if someone makes something, this is the crazy thing, the scene is big enough that if somebody made something today mm -hmm. that like 
you know, I made like three and a half, four years ago when I was first getting going, like there is a 99% chance that they didn't even know that I made that thing. Yeah, that happened to me at, at one point. I made a, a Winnie the Pooh out of a bear. Like I found a bear and I painted it like Winnie the Pooh. And I got a message from uh, based Gore, mm-hmm. who Ben Gore over in the UK that was like, yeah. oh, hey, just wanted to like know in case you want to do this, I made this a couple of years ago. I had no damn idea. No, and you know, I think it's a, it's good to have conversations with people who've done similar work. Yeah. But that conversation should never be, it should never be, I made this so you shouldn't put this out into the world. Mm. Like that's, that's like, honestly, that's like a moral line that I think is really like, is really problematic for me. Yeah. Because again, it goes back to this idea of exclusion and you are stifling the, the, the sort of the growth process of a person who is trying to enter the community. And that can be really fucking discouraging, mm. right? Like, and this is, this is why I'm saying, like, I urge everyone who's listening to this um, to think about that and to think about what it means to sort of make those claims, which frankly, in my opinion, are dubious claims to begin with. Because, you know, I, nobody, the like, fucking Disney owns Winnie the Pooh and Disney bought Winnie the Pooh from A.A. Milne, right? Like, yeah, you know, it's, it's one of those things. Like, I don't know. I just, I have a really hard time with that because ultimately what it feels like is bullying. Mm. It's like, I was the first kid to get that. Like I had that swing before you did on the playground. Like that's my swing. Yeah. Fuck you. It's a playground. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You know, like, like you don't get to claim ownership over that because there was nothing for you to claim ownership over in the first place. Um, and I'm, I'm sure people are going to disagree with me and that's fine. And uh, you know, I'm like, like I've had instances where this has happened to me where I've done work or someone posts something and I'm literally about to post the same thing. Mm. And I'm like, wow. And then it's like, is there something called the, like, can we conceive of a collective unconscious of bootleg toy makers? And we're all sort of like, when we dream, we're tapping into some sort of like ethereal stream of ideas. And at some point, two of us snap awake in the middle of the night at the exact same moment. And we were, you know, occupying the exact same sort of current or eddy in that stream. And we wake up and we're like, this is the idea. And then like two days later, both of us put that thing into the world. Who knows? Yeah. (laughs) But the fact that that can happen again, like, you know, like, like if anyone copied any of the ideas that I've made at this point, like, I'm sure there's part of me that's like, I would personally take a hit and be like, I made that. Right. And, and, but at the same time, I would also be like, well, like nobody has exclusive domain over Marcel Duchamp's fountain, which was kind of the point. And nobody has exclusive domain over R2D2. Right. So like, that's another, I'm I'm using personal example. I could use any example, but I'm making this about myself so that people understand. Like, I don't want to use other people's work as an example because I don't think that would be like fair. Yeah. Uh, so I'm using my own, right? Um, but yeah, like it would be that kind of thing where I would be like, well, I did that too. Yeah. You know, off you go. Like, you know, I think I think there's 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 different issues that emerge now with like some of this digital sort of like some of these people who are doing digital sculpts, for example, like, mm. like, like I brought up desert octopus and desert octopus has been pretty clear that people have like, 
like paid him the five bucks or whatever for all of the labor that he does creating these like extraordinary models for 3D printing. And then they make them and then they're making profit off of them. And that's like, you pushed a button on a machine when someone else did all of the labor. So maybe like, if you're gonna do that work, maybe have a discussion with 3D Octopus because you like the work so much that says, hey, like I'll cut you in for like, you know, like 30% minus material cost, right? Yeah. Like, like pay people for their labor is a more important issue to me than, than the ownership of an idea, mm-hmm. um, right? Because it's the, the work and the labor, like again, Canadian Marxist, but the work and the labor is the thing where like, you know, people should be compensated for anything else, like paying a tithe to someone because you do a tribute figure is fucking absurd to me. And I've heard that that happens. And I'm just like, yeah, I don't know. I also don't know what type of a, because I've seen tribute figures come out. And this is, this is off topic. I've never had the desire to make a tribute figure because I don't understand in my, like in my own voice that I'm trying to find in this scene. I don't know how that fits. I would rather just go talk to someone and be like, Hey, let's just hang out. I don't want to make you a figure. Although I could make the argument. And I think, I I think that the argument would have legs to say that all figures that we make are tribute figures. You devil. (laughs) like and and, and i you know and i mean that what i mean is like there are you know there are we're all paying tribute to sort of the cultural products that have influenced us as beings that brought us to this community absolutely so we're all paying tribute to something even if we're criticizing it even in a critique like you're paying tribute to something Mm -hmm. right like um you know, and sometimes maybe we don't know quite how that would work if we look at an object like, for example, like the Ted Kaczynski, like the Unimonor figure. What is that paying tribute to? I think it's paying tribute to sort of like media culture and the cult of personality, but it's also critiquing it, right? The fact yeah. that it's Ted Kaczynski, or for example, Rika's excellent Tiananmen Square piece, like oh, you know, Rika. like and it. the way that the way that Rika sort of pays tribute to sort of activist and protest movements through his figures. Um, you know, Magoob with his no name is paying tribute to both Star Wars and both sort of this, like the culture of the no name brand that exists in Canada. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a critique of it as well, right? But there's also embedded in that critique is also sort of like a pastiche, which is a nodding to that thing, not a parody necessarily, but a pastiche, which is a little bit different. And so as we have like continued, I think something that might be helpful as we've talked about tributes and like going through that, maybe giving definitions to the things in which we've talked about, right? So sure. what sure. defines yeah. these, if we're using all these different terms and this collective terminology to describe the same thing that we're all doing, maybe it's time because even as I talk to culture pop, uh, like very big on the idea that like we have just, the scene has changed so dramatically based off of what they used to do to now and how prices have dropped and all those things, which is fine. But I think that a restructuring of what we call certain things. Yeah, I think so. I think, you know, I think the bootleg thing, like I said, so like, you know, the terminology that I sort of wrote down like is like there are clearly differences that I talked about between bootlegs and knockoffs, right? Yeah. Um, 
you know, and then there's sort of like, like repros or reproduction scenes, right? And like, I include the kind of, I've been thinking about how to make that distinction because we talk about repros, which are just like straight up reproductions of like vintage things, like getting a repro like Blue Snaggletooth that looks exactly like Blue Snaggletooth. Mm -hmm. But what about replication? What if you are replicating the form of that thing, but in different a different colorway or something, right? So like I'm replicating this figure, but I'm not reproducing this figure. Yeah. Like, like you know, yeah. And I can, yeah. as we talk, I think that what might be helpful too is I, I'll list artists that I immediately like Hello Radical Toys is really good at reproduction and he does the Cantina, uh, Cantina pack. I, I don't remember what he calls it, but it's the four and he reproduces them in uh, different colorways. So he's hitting both yeah. of those. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And then for me, reproduction, right? There's the, but then there's this idea of like, if you think about like, Boba Luga, who I believe used to be called Has No Talent, uh, mm -hmm. or Stan Solo, or The Next 17, like, what they're doing, I think can best be described as emulation, because they're creating things in the original Kenner style that are original sculpts that are sort of continuing the line, right? Okay. So if we, em emulation is a little bit different, because you're copying sort of the behavior and aesthetic and operation of a thing, without necessarily like directly copying a thing that already exists right yeah so you're still drawing from like they're still drawing from the cultural like well that is star wars but they're producing things that were never produced there before um and and so like it's not a reproduction because we never had that figure before so what is it emulation is a good way to sort of think about that okay because it's adopting the style of the kenner figure in this particular way. I think in the same way that Super 7's reaction line is emulating vintage Star Wars. Like, you see the connection there? Yeah. Like, and like I mean, simple, like, sort of, like, not light on detail, but the details, like, these aren't the, the sort of like six inch hyper detailed, super articulate. It's 5P away. They're relatively simple sculpts by comparison. And they are meant to sort of indicate that they are among the sort of they are like the spiritual sort of offspring of that particular like moment in toy culture the things that i think about um most when we talk about emulation is that even when you watch the toys that made us shout out uh brian volksweiss we know that you're listening um even when we talk about the emulation in the episode of Kenner creating the Star Wars figures, they are doing, if I'm understanding this correctly, a form of it when they start creating periphery characters or like um, vehicles and stuff that don't actually exist in the movie, right? right. So, yeah, so they had, like Kenner had, Kenner had like a couple of schemes like that. The biggest one was the mini rigs, which were those like miniature vehicles at a lower yeah. price point. It's like the, the idea that somehow these vehicles existed like just off the edge of the frame and you never quite got a look at it. Which I love. So, yeah, adopting the aesthetics and also like as a market strategy to have like vehicles that like kids of like, you know, humbler means could afford. Um, yeah. And even, even in terms of like that sort of like that lost, what they call the lost Star Wars line which would have been the Star Wars, I think it was called The Saga Continues, mm -hmm. which was like the further adventures beyond the movies. And then Lucas was like, nah, -uh, yeah. that's my, like, no, you can't do that. You know, and then 
like all of the sort of Star Wars stories that are either like part of Legends or that non-canon thing that Disney decreed, but like all of that expanded universe stuff is all sort of like, yeah, emulating the behavior and the aesthetic dimensions of the original Star Wars narrative. Yeah, no. So yeah, so emulation is something else that I think is worth considering when we think about particular sort of like modes of production. Um, I think Desert Octopus is doing great work with his digital sculpts like that, right? Like he yeah. did like... He did like five POA versions of like the Bad Batch and Mandalorian before the Star Wars retro like series came out. And, you know, most recently he's been doing work with in like a five POA style of like some of the characters from Star Wars Visions from the anime. Fucking yeah. Amazing. I can't wait to like fire it. Like, yeah, I, I have a collection of uh, of his work that I literally like, I buy the model, I print one, and then there's a shelf here like made of just his figures because I think they're so well done. Yeah. Um, yeah, so like, you know, bootlegging, like again, I think like to, like just as a reminder, like bootlegging is sort of a cultural phenomenon where like the characters and the IPs that we're remixing and sort of adopting can be considered bootlegging, I think, because, you know, the idea that we live in a, an economy not predicated on goods but on ideas like that makes sense to me mm -hmm. um knockoffs are generally more corporate practices like reproduction we talked about like people reproducing and replicating work you know emulating work uh which is like sort of adopting those aesthetics and continuing on um and that's kind of all of the different versions there's other words that i have in here but i think they all kind of fit in there they all they, kind of fit in there even um, like words like kit bash Though those come to mind, um, I don't even know if kit bashing should be its own category, right? Because that's like, for me, it that feels, seems less like the rest of them. Well, in kit bashing, I, I think we talked about this when I was like the first show that I did, where kit bashing is a term that came from like the Hollywood special effects industry because they were literally taking different model kits and like smushing them together to create new things, right? Yeah. Um, so it's a good general term that describes the kind of like part of that, like that material remixing that we're already doing, mm -hmm. um, you know, and then customs as well. Like, like, can you make a custom bootleg? Absolutely. You, you can. Why? Because you are still locating the new thing that you're doing in a combination of other things that ideas or characters that are owned by somebody else. Mm -hmm. Right. So you don't necessarily need to make a mold of something and do a resin pour for it to be a bootleg toy. It's still a kind of copying going on there. Yeah. Um, you know, maybe it's somewhere between like bootleg and emulation, but it's still, I think, I think it's like, I think bootleg is still a, like a fairly like useful term. I just think that because there's so many other people who are doing work with like, like other kinds of materials, like, like vinyl and the designer toy scene has a lot of IP that people are sort of, like trying to make their own and distinct enough that they can like sort of sell and distribute this stuff, which is why I think like if we just adopted a more sort of inclusive, like I am an independent like toy artist, like or toy maker or whatever. Like I think that those are those are fully reasonable. Um, yeah. And again, right, the more specific we get, the less inclusive we get. And I think that's also like we can talk about our processes specifically, but I don't think that, you know, some of us will have different processes and they all kind of overlap. So like we need to figure out a way that we can talk about sort of all the material practices, but all sort of the ideas that we bring to it and where do we locate all of those. And then we can sort of have these larger umbrella terms that are very useful to all of us. Um, 
because I follow a lot of like, you know, sort of designer vinyl people. And that's a very different kind of like, like both like materially, aesthetically, like they're doing very different work, uh, even though sometimes there's overlap, right? Like this is like a Venn diagram with like a thousand circles mm -hmm. and all of them have a point of intersection somewhere. Um, you know, and, and, and yeah, like I said, like if it's, if it's about like art or design, like you can locate features, I think in all of those things that make it, you can make arguments both for and against. So it's like, let's talk about the particular features of a thing that make that thing what that thing is without ever having to like get bogged down in these like deeper questions where we'll never really get answers because everybody will have a different answer to it. Yeah. And I think this is such a good primer to have people understand because we're about to go in the next episodes, we'll go deeper into different issues. Yeah. But I think this is a good understanding that now I can send people to and they're like, what do you do? Well, I mean, that's tough to answer. Here's just yeah. an hour and a half episode that you can listen to about me yeah. and the and, community. And, you know, and maybe like at the end of this, people still won't have answers, but like part of like my challenge with scholarship is that every time I ask a question, it leads to two more questions. Yeah. So sometimes that's okay. That's okay too. Like that's the nature of, that's the nature of thinking about these kinds of things. Yeah. So I'm really like, obviously these are sort of the key drivers of what I'm interested in and those like, just to rearticulate them in case people tuned out. Yeah. <laughs> what I was trying, like, um, so I'm really interested in this idea of like, like copying as a cultural phenomenon Mm -hmm. I'm really interested in remix and I'm really interested in appropriation. And so we're going to talk ultimately, I think about different modes of copying and culture through toys for the next like five episodes. Right. Yeah. So um, one of them is going to be like, like corporate tales of copy culture, mm -hmm. which means I get to bring these guys up. Oh right? yeah. You can't see it, but I love them. Bubbly chubbies. Yeah. So yeah, so uh, including the the story of Way Out Toys Bubbly Chubbies, which were Teletubbies knockoffs that were sold at Walmart, um, and I've like even read like legal documentation and stuff at this point about this. It's really interesting. So we're gonna talk like there's gonna be a whole episode about because you know, like corporations do this as much as like individuals do, um, and even claims of ownership are just as contested as all of the stuff that I talked about in the community. Right. Yeah. Like, for example, Forever 21, like ripping off independent designers and selling stuff at scale that inevitably led to the fucking bankruptcy of that company. And that, you know, no complaints there. But like H&M yeah. is like fashion is another example of where this stuff happens all the time. So we're going to talk about toy industry stories of copying, whether that's a business model. So like something looks like something else, but is different or sort of like knockoffs and those kinds of things. Um, I think we're going to end up do, having to do like a whole episode around like Star Wars and or Mickey Mouse. I don't know if we can combine them or if it could be like individual episodes, yeah. but because those are two of the most sort of like pirated sort of like, like intellectual properties, really, I think in the world. And because they're two of the most popular entertainment franchises, like historically, right? Um, and Mickey Mouse is interesting. And we can talk about the history of that because Mickey Mouse is actually the first character to ever have its own licensing schema in the 20th century when mm. Walt Disney created a subsidiary solely for licensing a likeness of Mickey Mouse to companies to make shit. Um, we're going to talk about international bootlegs and, and like sort of do like a little bit of a world tour to talk about the particular 
like features and flavors of like the big five um, and what those look like and like why they look the way they do. Like, why do Mexican bootlegs look like originals, like have original sculpts and how do we still call them bootlegs? That's an interesting question. Um, you know, specific languages, like, or specific terminology in specific languages. So yeah, like Mexico has this thing, if you go to the, like the video game or, or sort of what they call the freaky, like freak culture, which is what they call nerd culture, uh, plazas and street markets. Um, there's signs all over that say no D la piratillas. And then, it, and what that means is don't call them like bootlegs, they're copies, copies. Oh, okay. So you, if you call something a bootleg, you'll be corrected and they'll be like, no de piratillas, you know, este un copia. And you're like, oh, it's a copy. Okay, it's not yeah. a bootleg. Thank you, you know? Um, and I find that really remarkable because it sort of shifts the discourse like to the place that is doing that kind of work. Um, and then, yeah, and then that sixth episode, I'm not quite sure what it'll look like. It might just be like a recap to come back and be like, you know, yeah. what did we learn boys and girls but that's like the professor side of me that maybe that's not useful to anybody we'll see how that goes and um, just as and, a side note we're going to be talking about protests and culture and culture jamming and that stuff yes and there's oh a, yeah that was the other that was the other part is like a culture jamming episode which i think yeah. connects to the mickey mouse thing i think we can oh yeah and i yeah. think people should be excited there's a new toys on tap shirt coming out about one of those things and we'll be doing pre-orders when that comes out can i just say like on the record how yes. how happy i am that you became enamored with the barbie liberation organization and the well talks we've so had since we talked about it man like this is a problem of of my brain and and i think that you could relate and i think a lot of toy people can relate it, it goes to the reason that i don't collect a lot of work right unless yeah. it gets sent to me or unless i just don't collect a lot because i if i start it starts something big and it, it, it should never start. Like it starts something that's outlandish and crazy. Yeah, I think that if people could see the difference between the two spaces that we're both talking from right yeah, now. Yeah, I got a brick wall behind me, you have a, a wall of <laughs> I toys. literally have a wall of carded figures and several yeah. shelves of like unpackaged stuff. Yeah, I, yeah, when I get passionate about something, I go pretty deep. Um, yeah. And I think there's a core part um, of who I am that it, that likes to redirect or likes the idea of redirecting culture. I don't, mm -hmm. and the idea of, and let me, let me phrase this correctly. I don't want to shit on culture. I don't think that that's correct. I don't want to disrupt to the point where it's like, Oh, fuck everything. And this is wrong. And I'm not yeah. that, but using culture and just refunneling its own energy back to say, yeah. or to show examples of why something shouldn't be, that's perfection to me. And this organization is did it. And, and maybe with culture jamming, if you want, I can talk about some of the more like critical activist and like artistic like legacy of like movements from the 1960s that sort of lead that that specifically dealt with this kind of issue. Yeah. Um, like the situationists in France and their idea of the detournement or redirection. Right. Which yeah. is exactly what you just talked about. Um, yeah. For me, you know, I think that it's fair. Like. Obviously, I love culture and I am a culture fiend. I consume so much culture, but yeah. I also have no problem saying this is really fucked up. This is wrong. Mm -hmm. And I think you can do both. I think you can be both. You can love a thing and be critical of a thing. Yeah. Right? Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, and, and I think that like sometimes people think that being critical means that you're shitting on it, which is 
you're saying no there is there are things here of value mm -hmm. but there are other things here that like are troubling and maybe we need to talk about it and work it out right yeah um, i think overarching themes are like what's what was so i mean back to that like what is so amazing is they're taking on gender roles or taking on like how to redefine how we talk about genders or how we like mm -hmm. deal with those. I don't like phrases that have to do with fuck insert here, like fuck this whole thing. Yeah. That's where I think yeah. that I fell in love with the BLL. Yeah. Yeah. Cause they're saying that like clearly Barbie is an important cultural artifact, but we have to ask questions about like particularly troubling parts yeah. of those cultural artifacts. Right. Yeah. And I still want a Cobra Commander that says Ken is dreaming. Yeah. So yeah, so we're going to talk about people who sort of like appropriate and remix and copy and and sort of transform and redirect like cultural phenomenon through toys. Like that's yeah. basically what we're doing here. This is less a history and more sort of a like a like a kind of like a journey through different facets of things i mean historically to a certain extent in that they all happened in the past but not historical in the sense that like we're going to do this in a straight line like we'll, yeah we'll, we'll do this thematically i think that's the best way to approach it talk about it um and i'm actually like super fascinated yeah with that in a way that i never used to be i've, I've been a fan of the blo for a really long time that was always one of my favorite sort of like like late 90s sort of like interventional like sort of culture jamming art projects yeah um but there's other stories that i've heard or read about um like through the history of barbie that i'm also like kind of interested in um, yeah so there's a lot we'll be talking about a lot of different ips and how people have sort of interpreted and reinterpreted and remixed and copied and pasted and you know scissors and glue and resin and electronics and, yeah it's gonna be fun on tap the next episode it's great it's amazing you're gonna want to listen to it it's not right now though you're gonna have to wait till the next episode to listen to it oh when's that the next one cool toys on tap the next one's gonna be good too so stay tuned and, and, and listen to that awesome